the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Let's get it underway on the Thursday. A week from today, we'll all be sitting down, hopefully, at uh, Thanksgiving dinner. These two guys included. So uh, it'll be another uh, couple of weeks before we have them back on. And uh, Seth Mays is here from the Arkansas GOP, as well as J.R. Davis is here from the Gilmore Group. And guys, uh, the Washington Post... To not my surprise, and probably few other people's uh, surprise, yesterday had a huge article about why we need to get rid of the Electoral College. So I thought it might be interesting to sit and talk a little bit about why the Electoral College is so important. And they even admit uh, that the chances of getting rid of the Electoral College are very slim. So I guess they just needed to fill a bunch of inches in their paper and so wrote uh, this huge, long opinion uh, piece. So let me just start with uh, with you all. We'll start with you, Seth, this morning. Why is the Electoral College as important today as when it was uh, put together in our Constitution? Good morning, Dave. I'm a little eerie. I'm looking around for cameras. I just happened to be reading the editorial page of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, in which their editorial is called uh, Keep the Electoral College in Session. And below that, they have posted uh, under (laughs) under the title, Others Say, the Washington Post Electoral College Abolish the Electoral College column. So I'm wondering if you were looking over my shoulder when you tossed that our way. But listen, the Electoral College, as with about every facet of our Constitution, I would say every facet, serves a purpose and intent. It reminds me of when people say, well, we need to get rid of the Senate because you see you can add all of these 20 some odd states together and their population doesn't equal California, who only has two senators. And that's disproportionate. What's disproportionate would be that individual's knowledge of the Constitution. The Electoral College serves a purpose, and it contains both equal representation in that every state has two senators and proportional representation. Arkansas has six electoral votes. Now, how do we get to that number? It takes our proportional representation, our four United States members of Congress, and adds that to our two senators. And that's how every state arrives at their Electoral College number, the number of senators plus the number of the members in their House. So it actually does have somewhat of a proportional metric in there, inherently in that magic number, 538, because 435 out of the Electoral College 538 
represents members of Congress, which are, of course, proportional, and which we adjust for every 10 years with the census, as we're going to see in the next year. So the Electoral College keeps in place smaller states. Listen, if we go immediately to a national popular vote, you can forget about a state like Arkansas. We have had several Republican candidates, Rubio, Cruz, Trump in 2016, visit the state, Dr. Carson as well. And the Democrats give them credit. You know, I believe Bernie Sanders made a trip to northwest Arkansas. Elizabeth Warren came here to Little Rock. I obviously don't agree with those, but I think it's great. Any day Arkansas can host a presidential candidate of any party or persuasion. But we switch to a national popular vote. You can forget that. And this election is fought between New York, L.A., Dallas, Atlanta, and maybe Chicago. You know, that's that's the election right there in those places. Because even in a place like L.A., you still have a million Republicans and more. So it, it, it's just a it's just a numbers game. And we would take flyover country to a whole new meeting, getting rid of the Electoral College. All right. Let's turn it over to J.R. J.R., your thoughts. Yeah, I think uh, Seth, you know, um, hit the nail on the head there. Uh, the Electoral College, you know, I, again, it's it, I've seen some legislators call for uh, the end of the Electoral College, uh, legislators here in Arkansas. And, and that just boggles my mind because in one one side of the argument, you're, you're saying that, you know, you don't want to disenfranchise voters, right? And the other side, you're saying, let's get rid of the Electoral College where it's our really only representation uh, for a national election for states like Arkansas, Oklahoma, Tennessee. I mean, uh, to Seth's point, if you were to do away with this, the the sort of representation or any sort of attention from southern Midwest type states uh, would would go out the window. Uh, and look, I thought I, I read an article just the other day uh, about sort of the uh, you know the kind of what next uh, for national media following this campaign season. And I think the electoral college has forced some of these news outlets to start covering. Uh, places like Arkansas, Tennessee, Iowa, better than they have in the past as far as sort of that year-round coverage. That would not happen if we did away with the Electoral College. Now, that's anecdotal, and that's you know something that would happen on the media side of things. But I'm just saying the attention as a whole, the representation, it's a terrible idea to get rid of the Electoral College. Well, when you look at where the majority of the population is, it's just four, maybe five states. I mean, if you if you want those four or five states by a majority, you could probably write your ticket to the White House. And uh, I don't think that represents the rest of the people of this country. I agree with you completely. I mean, and that's that's the the issue, Dave. I mean, it, like this idea that somehow, if you say it's going to be a popular vote election and that's what should decide it, you're right. There's never going to be any sort of attention paid to voters that don't live in the top ten cities in America, uh, and and so if how that would be more, you know, reflective of. Uh, the United States of America makes zero sense to me. So how you go from an electoral college where every state, every voter has a voice to a just strictly popular vote method where, you know, now again, nobody's paying attention to 
anything other than what's happening in these cities across America. That's it. Yeah, and I I, I don't see any uh, time soon where we'll see uh, a constitutional amendment to change from the Electoral College to popular vote. So what we're seeing is the people who are against the Electoral College want states to go about counting their electoral votes differently. And, uh, you know, that's been beaten down a couple of times here in Arkansas. Yep. Dave, one thing I'll note, too, that, that J.R. had noted there, which I think is very insightful, we would obviously not see presidential candidates campaigning in states like Michigan and, and Wisconsin or Ohio in states that we consider the traditional swing states because ostensibly they wouldn't matter against population centers like L.A. and New York. That would also change the dynamic of what issues we see on the campaign trail. For instance, the opioid crisis was a major issue in 2016. It was affecting the entire country, but it was in particular affecting the state of Ohio in places like Michigan and Wisconsin. Uh And so, you know, the Trump administration did a number of things, including a task force led by governor, outgoing governor at the time, Chris Christie of New Jersey, uh, that had a number of recommendations and funding sent to these areas that needed it most. If we have a national popular vote, I don't know that that issue percolates to the top of the national dialogue in the way that it did. And and that is a real, you know, kitchen table issue because uh, almost everybody knows somebody or knows someone who would know someone that has been affected directly by this, by this opioid crisis. It just didn't, it, in the course of things, you know, percolate to the top of the 2016 dialogue absent the the states that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump needed to campaign in. And and so I think that there's so many, you know, little little side consequences of getting rid of something like the Electoral College that particularly Democrats just don't take into account because they just they want to do away with it. They have a theory that they will win the popular vote absent in the Electoral College. And I don't know that that is true. I think Democrats in California and New York are quite mobilized, and I'm willing to bet there are quite a few Republicans in, in those big Democratic states, Illinois, New York, California, uh, probably a lot in Washington State, too, around the Seattle area, that they don't come out and vote because they know that they live, okay, in, in predominantly blue states. So yep. I don't know that I would see the fact that Republicans wouldn't stand a chance either in the popular vote. Yeah, I I have to agree with you, and it, I just bring it up because the Washington Post wrote this, uh, a, you know, opinion piece, and I understand it's an opinion ple- uh, piece, but when you really don't give any credence to the other side and their argument about what they, why they want, what they want, and what you want, and uh, you know, it's it's really a sad article to be honest. Uh, but the Washington Post has been calling for this for years. I didn't know that the uh, Demgas had one just the opposite, so I think that's kind of cool. I'm, I appreciate that they wrote that. I'm trying to think of the uh, lady who was uh, 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 down in the Benton Bryant area that was a state representative who gave an impassioned speech several years back when uh, the left was trying to uh, – come up with a way for us to circumvent the electoral college 
it was Ann, and I can't think of her last name right now. Probably Ann Clemmer. It was Ann Clemmer. That's right. She's a, she was a history teacher, if I'm not mistaken, and she gave mm-hmm. one of Brilliant. the one of the best speeches about why we needed to keep the electoral college. I wish I could just find that particular speech that she gave from the well of the uh, the house uh, here in Arkansas. And I would never have to say another word about this. Yeah. Did you ever? Well, it's he- going to be an issue. Did you ever it's hear going to be it, an Seth? Issue that the left is going to bring up, right? In the future, going forward, the left isn't going to give this up. No. Uh, because they believe once they get they get away with that, we won't have another Republican president. Well, and I agree with that. That's exactly what they think, and that's exactly what they're pushing. All right. When we come back, uh, the uh, human rights campaign. Uh, making a move that I've wondered why they hadn't made it in a uh, you know before now. We'll talk about it when we come back, and it deals with Christian schools and colleges. That is uh, what we're going to talk about next as we uh, continue our conversation on with uh, J.R. Davis and Seth Mays here on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, you can see that on the big screen again, second Tuesday of December. All you got to do is go to Riverdale10.com and uh, order your tickets online. You don't even have to go to the theater and be around people. Uh, Get your tickets there. Uh, They'll seat you so that there's uh, six feet between you and the nearest person in the the audience. And everything is sanitized before you go in. So, uh, you know, have a good time. That's a great movie. Really, really is. It's a great movie. If you've never seen it on the big screen, you need to see it on the big screen because you'll see a lot more things in the movie that you never saw before. It's really, really cool to to watch that movie on the big screen. So I hope that you'll take advantage of it. And then don't forget that coming up on the uh, second Tuesday of January, we'll be showing uh, Gone with the Wind. That's a, that's a yearly thing that we do here on the uh, the Dave Ellswick show because it was such a, an incredible movie of its time that we we like to uh, show that movie over and over again. All right, so the human rights campaign is now demanding, guys, that the Biden administration ensure that, quote, non-discrimination policies and science-based curriculum are not undermined by religious exemption to accreditation standards. That's, that sounds reasonable, right? Except when you think about it a little bit, that uh, what they're saying is that uh, the human rights campaign is effectively calling for religious colleges and schools uh, to be coerced into the sexual revolution or stripped of their accreditation. That is sinister. So let's talk a little bit about that. I've, I've, I'm surprised this is haven't ha- hasn't happened. When we had the uh, uh, Supreme Court decision about making gay marriage legal, I have been very, very uh, surprised that uh, the Human Rights Campaign and other organizations of their ilk haven't attacked the, the Churches of America saying that they must allow people to get married in their uh, in their churches whether they agree uh with uh, the marriage or not so uh, it looks like maybe this is the first strike towards 
that particular uh, argument. So let's start this time with you, Jr. Your thoughts on this? Well, I think my first initial thought is I've, I've never understood why you would want to, uh, you know, if, if you are gay, why you would want to get married in a church that does not believe in what you are doing. Um, that is just more of the, the personal side of things. But, yeah, it's very concerning that, you know, I think that with the turn of the elections, um, um, that you know, I think the human rights campaigns, others, I think ACLU, I mean, they, they have they now have this sort of, uh, um, you know, in their minds, a mandate, which obviously it was not anybody that looks, you know, <clears throat> at the elections across the country know that. Uh, but that's the way they feel. And so they're going to start pushing these things. Uh, to me, that is the very fabric of our society, uh, uh, you know, the very fabric of America is that religious freedom. And, you know, as long as the left continues to attack, uh, you know, churches or, uh, you know, faith-based organizations because of what they believe or how they believe, um, it, to me, that's a very, very scary place to be as a country. Um, and especially the United States of America. So, yeah, I, I mean, this is something that, that Republicans, that Christian leaders, um, that people of faith in America, you know, have to uh, pay attention to. Don't take your eye off the ball, because I think this is going to come um, fairly quickly, uh, you know, once the uh, Biden-Harris administration takes hold. I think this attack is just going to continue. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. I'm I'm surprised that it hasn't happened already, to be honest. I guess with the Trump administration, they figured uh, there would be legislation to stop it. I can tell you this much. Legislation will still be around to stop it, especially if we continue and protect those two uh, senatorial seats in Georgia, because the uh, the Senate will stop that dead in its tracks. And now with, uh, I think, uh, Barrett, added to the court the uh, the left knows that trying to do this through the court system is not going to be uh, favorable to them as well so uh, your thoughts on this seth yeah I, I think this just really confirms what many folks had feared in a joe biden administration you know oh well, uncle joe isn't he so nice he's so empathetic uh, but many people thought he'd be a Trojan horse for the left, and now you're seeing different interest groups come around, and they're ready to collect their chips, okay? <laughs> they they put it out on the table. Uh, the bell's ringing. It's closing time, and it's come to collect what's yours. And Bernie Sanders wants to be labor secretary. Uh, the liberals out in California want Gavin Newsom to appoint somebody even to the left of Kamala Harris, if such a person exists. And so now folks are going around and trying to cash in on this administration and in their minds gets what's theirs. And that's what I think HRC, the human rights campaign, uh, is is doing with this. And I, <laughs> it was funny the way you had worded that. It's almost like, gee, did we forget about freedom of religion? Yep. <laughs> you know, it seems yeah. like that is just out the window immediately. Just a whole section of the Bill of Rights. Let's just throw that out the wind. Who really needs that? So I think this is what a lot of folks expected in many different ways. And we're going to see that play out over the next two months. Uh, leading up to January 20th, as we hear news on on cabinet appointments, that's going to let us know which way Joe Biden's going to play this. And I think the left is going to be happy well, with he, which way he plays yeah. it, because they knew all along where he was going. Go ahead, Jr. No, no, I, just, I was going to just quickly say, Seth, I agree with everything that Seth is saying. I think that one thing, one point I'll make is that you have the left uh, of America, those liberals out there that always talk about tolerance 
Yet there is no tolerance at all from the left for religious uh, organizations or for religious freedom in general. You must believe and accept the way they believe and those who they accept and the way they do things, or it's just, or there's no toleration for it at all. And to me, it's just an absolute hypocritical uh, 180 from what they say versus what they do. And, and this is going to go back to what we have dealt with, what we dealt with throughout the Obama administration. But this is going to be gas in the tank for the liberal left. And, and it's just something that uh, that uh, Christians and, and uh, uh, faith-based organizations have to really, really pay attention to. Thank you. Uh, hey, guys, we'll be right back. We got the news. You know, it wouldn't be Thanksgiving unless the left wrote articles about how terrible the settlers were they came to this country and destroyed the american indian culture and the the new york times has done it again guys let me just read a little bit of their latest uh, screed that they wrote you're gonna love this uh arguably the best known of the myths of our founding is the story of the first thanksgiving the holiday robert May, uh, magnan who is a a Native American who led the buffalo hunt at Fort Peck in Montana does not observe. He says, quote, Thanksgiving is kind of like Columbus Day for Native people, he said. Why would we celebrate people who try to destroy us? It's now widely accepted that the story of a friendship ceiling repast between white colonists and Native Americans is inaccurate. Articles uh, debunking uh, the tale have become as reliable an annual media ritual as recipes for cornbread stuffing. But this year should be different, say Native American leaders, scholars, and teachers. The holidays arrives in the midst of a national struggle over racial justice and a pandemic that has landed with particular force on marginalized communities of color. The crises have fueled an intense re-examination of the roots of the persistent inequalities in American life. Now, I want everybody to know, as you've listened to my show, the 1619 Project that the New York Times uh, has perpetuated over the last couple of years is, is dangerous. I believe it's very, very dangerous because schools are starting to embrace it and are beginning to teach it. That's why next week I will have on a um, scholar who will talk about his critique of the the uh, the, the policy that the uh, New York Times and it's called 1620. And you're going to he's written a book and you're going to want to hear what he has to say. And I'm trying to get him for the hour because a half hour is just not going to going to do it uh the left the leftists are doing what leftists always do and what socialists always do they're trying to change the history of our country and uh this is it's happening it's happening before our eyes and in many cases uh, we're doing nothing to fight against it and i will fight tooth and nail uh against this I, I really will. So just know that's coming up next week. I, I don't have a, a, an hour yet, but it's coming. And the book, you've got to read that book. It is absolutely awesome. But this whole thing of the attack on Thanksgiving, 
uh, has never, ever, ever let up over the last, I think, 10 to 15 years that the colonists came to America, uh, came to the shores of this nation, and uh, declared war on Native Americans. Uh, Do you want to start off with this one, Seth? Sure. I'll note on the 1619 Project just briefly they even at the New York Times have moved away from the the basic assertion of the 1619 Project, which is that America's true founding is rooted in racism in the year 1619, and that they have even scrubbed from their own their own reporting on the subject. So even the New York Times no longer believes the New York Times premise uh, for that argument. You know, I I have no problem with with learning more in the future than what we used to know and with nuanced figures in history. No doubt some of our founders did a number of things that by our standards today are just abhorrent. But that doesn't mean you scrub everything that they did. You know, I was taught, as probably everybody was in school, I, I have no reason why. This is a fact you could go on without knowing. But we were all told George Washington had wooden teeth, right? That was something everybody says. Well, That's actually not true. George Washington, at the time that he was sworn in as president, only had one real tooth that was his own. The rest was a hippopotamus ivory denture that was carved to be placed over George Washington's one tooth. And the rest of his teeth were inlays from slaves that he owned. I don't know why, as kids, we weren't told that, but those are actually kept at Mount Vernon, his dentures. Does that mean that all of George Washington's contributions to our union ought to be thrown out because he did something that I think just (laughs) makes all of us a little queasy just thinking about having a a slave's teeth in in your mouth to use as your own? That that seems way weird, but the the idea that General Washington, President Washington's accomplishments have to be put by the wayside, and we can't tell the full story of who the man was. I mean, just the fact that he stepped aside from the presidency after two terms was a precedent that went unchallenged until we had our our first socialist president, FDR, who, who of course said, well, hey, this isn't written down anywhere, so let's ignore that. I mean, George Washington's, what he's done for this union in his farewell speech, urging folks to not to not go to ideological parties, which ironic since I work for one. Uh, but still, the things that George Washington did for this union, uh, I would have to think, should be certainly the lead in the story of his life. It doesn't mean that you can't include the full story, but wanting to erase this stuff and Thanksgiving and Columbus Day, and it's, you know, they want to get rid of the Electoral College every four years. They want to get get rid of this stuff every year. We have these same debates about erasing our history, and I'm saying just tell the full history about everybody and about everything, and you can make an evaluation on somebody's life and still have disagreements with parts of the way they lived it. Yeah, and I agree with that. Um, Let's turn it over to to Jr. No, I, I agree uh, with Seth once again. I think that was uh, very well stated there. I mean, look, uh, why not? Why can't we take a step back and and you know instead of and tr- trying to get rid of our history, which again I'm a firm believer that if you, you you're not a a student of history, you're you're doomed to repeat it. I mean, you've got to be able to pay attention about where we are as a country, where we've come from. And let's celebrate where we've come from, where we are now versus where we were, the progress that we've made on certain 
you know, aspects of society. But you can't, you know, going back to, you know, George Washington or go through the history of our country and the leaders that we've had. Uh, Abraham Lincoln had his shortcomings on a lot of issues, you know, and, and I think that we remember him for, obviously, the Emancipation Proclamation but and the 13th Amendment. But basically, when he's, you know, there were times, too, that, you know, there were other uh, focuses for him that wasn't necessarily what he is remembered for. And so I just I, I say all that to say, you know, kind of echoing uh, Seth's point, you know, history is history. Let's tell the whole story. Let's not try to hide things because we're either ashamed of what happened uh, or we don't think people can take it. Just tell the full story and let's celebrate how we've progressed as a country uh, on different aspects you know, over the last, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, few generations. I mean, just to see where we've come, and so that—that's what I look at it. Uh, that's how I look at it, and it's frustrating that it, there's this constant um, uh, battle to just get rid of our history altogether. Because I think that's just—that's not helping anyone. Yeah, and whether where they try to rewrite the history is kind of insidious in itself. The New York Times wrote this article and placed it in the food section. <laughs> now, you know, you're not expecting when you're reading the food section and you're looking for something new to do with stuffing or whatever for Thanksgiving uh, to come across uh, a rewriting of the, the whole Thanksgiving uh, history. In fact, Senator Tom Cotton put out a tweet about this saying, I see that the 1619 Project has seized control of the New York Times food section, which today claims that the first Thanksgiving is a myth and a caricature. False. They should stick to stuffing and pumpkin pie. (laughs) Nothing works quite as a digestive like cultural commentary in the food section. Really? I mean, (laughs) seriously, you know, that that that's what they this is the stuff that they do. You know, as far as this, they they slide it in. It, it it's the same way that they tried to slide the new math in uh, to our our classrooms and things of that nature. Where they they moved it into social studies, they moved it into history. You know, they moved it into into all different things, so that you had uh, these written math problems that would be shown up in the art, in art classes. You know, if if you had this percentage of red and this percentage of uh, blue, uh, what percentage of orange would come out of it? I mean, that this is what they do. Well, and, and look, this is something that, especially this election cycle specifically, and we've seen it over the last four years and, and even before then, but maybe it just wasn't as prominent or we weren't paying attention, or heck, it's because we've been stuck at home for nine months and we're paying more attention to it. But look, the national media has become more and more of an influencer uh, outlet than it has been just a news outlet and where you go and gather your news. They want to tell you what to think, how to think, what to feel, what to say. We've seen it from the New York Times uh, on on multiple occasions. We saw it when it involved Senator Tom Cotton's uh, op-ed. Uh, that basically forced a, a, you know several resignations, uh, some firings, and, and a walkout, all because this new quote-unquote woke generation uh, that works for the New York Times didn't agree with that opinion 
although it was an opinion. That was the entire point of it. And so that's what we've seen, Dave, over the last you know few years is that the, the national media, and this is why people don't trust them, and that's where I think the biggest loser in the last four years, it hasn't been the Democrats, it hasn't been the Republicans, it has been the national news media because people do not trust them anymore because they are telling people what to think, how to think, what to feel uh, versus just the news itself. And I think people are rejecting that. Well, I sure hope so. I mean, I got my fingers crossed. Like I keep telling people, I, I, I always said that I'd be taking a dirt map, a nap before this country uh, went totally to the left. But sometimes I wonder now because I've seen so many things change in such a short period of time. But uh, I have, I have hope that uh, as I watch this election, though the president looks like re-election is going to be kept from him. Uh, everything else went conservative as far as I'm concerned, and and that gives me a whole lot of hope for our future in this nation. When we come back, guys, I want to talk about the New York Times, and I'm going to say something good about them. That's a, that's a change. That's a change. I'll say something good about the New York Times when we continue here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, so I'm going to say something good about the New York Times. Of course, they didn't do this story until after the election, uh, so uh, that's to be considered. But they have said that President Trump has been demanding for months that schools reopen, and on that, he seems to have been largely right, says the New York Times. Uh Schools, especially elementary schools, do not appear to have been major source of coronavirus transmission, and remote learning is proving to be a trophy for many low-income children, yet America is shutting schools. New York City announced uh, yesterday that it was closing schools in the nation's largest school district, even as it allows businesses like restaurants and bars to operate. What are our priorities? Wow. Now, you could take that two ways. Are they saying that we need to shut the schools down and the restaurants and the other businesses? Or are they saying, well, they're doing right about the restaurants and businesses, so let's do right about the schools as well. Phil Kirpin, who's going to be on my show, uh, wasn't planned this way, but uh, he's going to be on the show at 735, said it's so ridiculous seeing the New York Times and other liberals saying, quote, Now we know schools aren't risky when anyone following the data already knew it while they lied all summer. And I agree with Phil Kirpin as well. Kind of interesting, guys, isn't it, that suddenly, uh, you know, the president was right about this. Who wants to jump on? (laughs) Sorry, I'll I'll go first there. You know, that uh, that's an issue. If we think about some, once again, some of the long-term consequences of if we would have said, you know what, to all to all of our students, K through 12, and to higher ed, let's take a year off. Let's just everybody take a gap year. The long-term effects of having a generation set back a year, I just don't know that we can really begin to wrap our head around the number of ways that would have impacted their lives moving forward in the future. But we do know, and we've known for a while now, that certainly kids of a young age uh, have minimal to no risk if exposed to COVID. The issue has always been what about teachers or perhaps parents, older parents, or if you live 
your guardian is your grandparents and about bringing the, sp the spread to those people. So the idea of offering mixed learning where some students could learn from home, if that was what best fit them and the district was able to do that, but that the majority of students could go back to in instruction learning. Now that might include some plexiglass at, at the desk, okay, so it looks a little different. Um, but the idea that that wasn't the right course the whole time um, I think it's a little befuddling. And it, sometimes, you know, it just takes the New York Times and the Post and others a little bit to get to where the rest <laughs> of us are. Um, but that's always been the right approach is really more options for the parents. What do you think is the best way for your kid to learn in this time? And most people choose in-person in instruction. And, and that's their choice to do so, as it would be if you chose, you know, hey, uh, my, my child's immunocompromised, as am I. And my my mother, my elderly mother lives in the home, too. It's probably just best if we could do from home learning and that was an option and everybody's good with that, then let's do that. Why not more options in education? Your thoughts uh, on this? Go ahead. Uh, choice is, is important, especially in a time like right now. Uh, the governor, I know there's been news recently about what the plans are for schools moving forward in Arkansas. And, and I, I really want to focus on that for a second, especially something like the Little Rock School District uh, here in the heart of our state, in the capital city. You know, there's always this argument over, you know, how, how do we how do we close the gap uh, with students? How do we uh, provide, you know, the right kind of facilities and resources? And we have this new beautiful high school in Southwest Little Rock. Um, there, there's all these these ideas of how, how do we how do we close the gap? Let me just tell you, if you switch to uh, or if you shut the schools down, uh, you are going to see this not just in the Little Rock School District, but across the state, across the country, where the gap uh, that we have been trying so hard to narrow is going to just bust wide open. It will be almost irreparable what happens to this next, or at least to a faction of this next generation as far as who uh, are actually left behind because not every student uh, has the resources at home um, equal to, uh, you know, perhaps one of their classmates. And, and that's what's important in this. Where we can, students need to be in the classroom in order to get that personal instruction from a teacher so we do not have this tremendous gap a year from now. We're going to see the fallout from COVID-19 much longer than when we all get, you know, the vaccine and we move about life, we are going to see the the fallout of this for years to come. And my biggest concern is that it is going to be, uh, uh, you know, on the, the educational level with our students. Um, and what that looks like, I don't know. But I've always been a big proponent to keep students in the classroom if they can. And it's a safe and as safe as possible environment uh, so they can get the learning they need. Otherwise, we are going to see uh, huge changes. Yeah, I and I agree with you, Jr. That was that was well said and 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 well thought out as as well. Hey, the New York Post talking about the governor of New York. I guess you heard that uh, Como is not happy with all the sheriffs that are saying they're not going to go knocking on people's doors on Thanksgiving to make sure that they have they don't have more than ten people at their Thanksgiving dinners. He really is. He's upset. Here's his quote. I don't believe as a law enforcement officer you have a right to pick and choose what laws that you're going to enforce. There you go. He really thinks they're going to go, I guess, you know, lead people out in handcuffs and to the county jail because they got more than 10 people 
and a Thanksgiving celebration. Of course, if you're Governor Newsom, you can give a birthday party and fly (laughs) people from all over the state to it. All right, with that all said, uh, thanks for being on, guys. you got next week off. Enjoy your Thanksgiving, and thanks for being part of the Dave Ellswick Show today. Thanks, Dave. All right, we'll talk to you guys in a week. We'll be back. Jerry Cox joins us. We'll talk about the uh, hate crimes legislation that's floating around the Capitol. Plus, Jason Rapert wants to get rid of abortion. We'll talk about that as well. Second hour of the Dave Ellswick Show for a Thursday. Jerry Cox from the Family Council joining us today. A couple of things to talk with uh, with Jerry about uh, that are that are out there. One is uh, the big story that came out uh, earlier this week. Although we've talked about this, Jerry, uh, months ago, that there were members of the uh, the legislature with the governor's uh, uh, you know blessing working on hate crime legislation. So now it's together, and uh, Senator Hendren is uh, is behind it. And from, you know, my reading of it, I think it's worse than what we expected. What do you think? Well, this is a very dangerous law at a very dangerous time in our country because, Dave, you and I both know that the whole cancel culture that wants to shout you down right now and intimidate you from expressing your views and speaking and writing what you believe, they would absolutely love to have a law that they could wield like a weapon against people of faith, people who believe in traditional values, people who just want to be able to say, you know what, I disagree. I believe you're wrong. Right. And this gets really dangerous here real quick. And I tell you, the uh, city of Fayetteville uh, has already jumped out ahead of this law and passed an ordinance up there that can make you pay a fine if they convict you of uh, of some kind of hate crime, so to speak. And, you know, we a lot of people think, well, that's going to crack down on the evil, racist, white supremacists and, and all that. And that's who they think about. But they don't think about the local pastor who wants to preach what the Bible says. They don't think about the person who just wants to live by the dictates of their conscience out here, and it happens to be politically incorrect. And so all of a sudden it becomes a hate crime. And um, I just think it's it's terribly ill-advised at this time. It does seem to have garnered uh, some support, although it looks basically it's, <laughs> a lot of the support comes from the Democrat side, doesn't it? Well, the last time there was a serious effort to pass a hate crimes law in Arkansas, um, 
Attorney General Mark Pryor, a Democrat, led the charge, and the Republicans voted against it, along with a lot of Democrats, and it did not pass. But here's the thing with these laws, Dave. Other states passed these laws 20 years ago, probably, and guess what? You cannot pass a law that will eliminate hate. Wow. You know what? I mean, (laughs) you know, duh. You just can't do it. And so these laws, in addition to the unintended consequences, do nothing to actually address the real problems of racism and people just being mean to one another and being hateful and all that. There may be some laws that we need to look at passing that might deal with some of that, but this is not it. And it's never been it, and it never will be it. Because take, for example, Minnesota. They got a hate crimes law. George Floyd still died. Yep. Texas has a hate crimes law. That guy went down to El Paso and shot all those people at the Walmart. Michigan has a hate crimes law. And that radical group still plotted to kidnap and kill the governor of Michigan. These people don't wake up one morning and say, boy, I was going to go kill a bunch of people at Walmart today, but we got a hate crimes law, so I guess I can't do it. Yeah. It just doesn't work that way. Or I got I, if I'm going to kill a lot of people, I got to do it with diversity. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it, and see here's what it does. Somebody said, "Well, Jerry, it sends the right message." Oh, I hate that. I, I do too. And I said, "Let me tell you what it does. It sends the wrong message. It sends the wrong message because you, as a politician, you as an elected official." are telling me you actually did something that would fix problems and you did nothing. You did absolutely nothing. (laughs) And you're going to walk out of here and you're going to pound your chest and tell us all how you fix the problem. And then we're going to still be in the same shape we were when you started. And that's exactly what's happened in all these other states where all these terrible crimes occur. They all have these laws and people look down their nose at, Arkansas, because we're one of the few states that doesn't have such a law. And I say, we've got the benefit of knowing, guys, that your law doesn't work. Well, and I, so maybe oh, we'll ahead. do something else. Well, I'll tell you what, Jerry, I think they'll use this to, the left will use this as a hammer against freedom of religion. I, I really do, as well as freedom of speech. Uh, the human rights campaign uh, in the uh, Department of Education's new uh, I guess, report that they sent to President Biden. Uh, And I I say president because uh, he's not president yet. Let me make that clear. Uh, Although I'm I'm seeing it narrow for President Trump at this time. But I have hope that things will go our way in Georgia and uh, it won't matter who's who's sitting in the White House, to be honest. Anyway, the human rights campaign in uh, the Department of Education report demanded that the Biden administration to ensure that non-discrimination policies and science-based curriculum are not undermined by religious exemptions uh, to accreditation standards. Uh, What they're saying is unless you live by what... uh, this kind of law would do. You can't get your uh, your Christian school accredited uh, for kids that go to it. That's sinister. That's really sinister. And, and to be honest with you, I'm surprised it's taken them this long 
uh, to try to do this. But Dave, don't you know that these groups are going to be emboldened by if we do end up with a Biden presidency and if Arkansas passes a hate crimes law, it'll be just like what Fayetteville's already done. They've already jumped ahead of this law and passed something even stronger, I believe, up in Fayetteville, where they can wield that as a a weapon against people that they think are not towing the liberal uh, line, so to speak, and all that. And so it just doesn't bode well. Dave, you and I are about the same age. You remember how the, the, we fought communism back when, you know, the, the people fought communism when you and yeah, I were kids. Of course. And we were told that those evil communist Eastern Bloc countries punished people for what they thought. Yeah. But in America, you could believe what you want to. You could act on your conscience as long as you don't hurt anybody and um, and all that. Well, guess what? We're about to pass a law here in Arkansas, I'm afraid, that will punish people for what you think, what you believe. And um, and that's what we thought the war is, I thought, to hold at bay. And now it just pops up right here in our own backyard. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Things have changed immensely over just the last 10 years concerning this. The attacks on the yeah. First Amendment and the Second Amendment never abate. And they get stronger all the time. And uh, our school system, which, uh, you know, genuflects to much of the leftist uh, uh, thought process, teaches our children this. And I've, I've said this a million times. I'll say it a million times more. You send your child to a government school and you wonder why they come back a brown shirt. This is the reason why. I'm just telling you. This well, is and, the reason and why. See, that's, imagine, though, then a law that would empower those those powers that be to wield it against uh, you know folks like you or me or others that again just want to hold a traditional view and operate that way and so it's it's really really dangerous now let me tell you the good news a bunch of state lawmakers have already told me i'm not for this i'm not going to vote for it um and so i think it can be stopped Okay. But there will be a lot of pressure on lawmakers once they get inside that Capitol building in January. The powers that be, the money, the interest. Uh, I think the, um, uh, you know, some of the business interests have already come out in favor of it. And so there will be pressure on our lawmakers to vote for this or vote for some version of it. And I say there is no version of this that's acceptable because once you put even a, a weaker measure in place, Guess what? Every time the legislature convenes, they're going to want to expand it. They're going to add to it, and you'll end up with something awful. Yeah, and I and I don't disagree with you. And I just hope that uh, the people that are against this hold firm and vote it down. And maybe if they if they tell, if they get it clear across to Senator Hendren, perhaps he'll pull this legislation down. We'll we'll see if if that happens or not jerry cox from the family council is our guest when we come back want to get to him uh, and find out what he thinks about jason rapert jason rapert's got some legislation he's behind i think that uh, it's it's good legislation we'll talk about it when we continue here on the dave ellswick show 16 make it 17 minutes after seven we got more coming your way and uh, while i got a moment let me tell you about pi roofing use pi roofing it's a 
company that I use uh, to take care of my roof on my home. They put a new roof on my home uh, many years ago. Uh, There's going to be time to put another one on, I think, next year, and it's PI Roofing that I'll I'll have out at my house taking care of it now, uh, taking care of that uh, in the near future, and uh, they have been taking care of it uh, consistently over the time when I've had some small problems with flashing or uh, DirecTV came out and drilled some holes in my roof and all kinds of problems with leaks around those. They came out and fixed those as well. They'll also follow all the COVID-19 protocols that are out there to protect your family and to protect their workers. All you have to do is call them, 707-3551, 707-3551, or visit them online, piroofing.com. Just to let you know, the furthest I went away was to go down the top of my coffee cup. That's all I did. I, I filled my coffee cup back up. Jerry... Uh, Cox is with us from the Family Council. Jerry, uh, Jason uh, Rapert brought forth some legislation that he, of course, wants to try to push through uh, the state Senate, state House, get it on the governor's desk about abortion, and uh, literally would get rid of abortion in the state of Arkansas. You want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, Yes, this is a really good bill, I think, introduced at the right time. And here's what it does. Two years ago, Senator Rapert got a bill passed that said if Roe versus Wade is ever reversed, then the state of Arkansas will automatically, immediately uh, make abortion illegal. And it specified that, you know, you, you could still get one to save the life of the mother. And uh, it, um, you know, had some other directives in there about penalties and that sort of thing. And it's called a trigger bill. It's just sitting there waiting for Roe v. Wade to be reversed so that it can go into effect. Well, the uh, powers that be at the Capitol all looked at it, and uh, the lawmakers voted for it, and they put that in place. And so it's been sitting there ready to go at the moment Roe is reversed. Right. Well, what Senator Rapert has very astutely done, he just said, you know what? We're not going to wait for Roe to be reversed. Let's just go ahead and pull the trigger on this trigger bill right now. If if we think it's a good idea down the road when Roe is reversed, then let's just go ahead and, and let's just do it now and let's pass it and let's send it to the courts and let them chew on it. And here's what we're, we we I think we will gain out of this. In the best scenario, this thing goes up to the US Supreme Court which is very favorable for pro-life legislation now that we have Trump appointees on there. And they use this law to reverse Roe, and every state gets to make their own abortion laws. Or the court gives us guidance on what we can do to restrict abortions. And either way, it's a win-win for for Arkansas and I think for the pro-life movement in general. But, Dave, maybe more importantly— we need to keep affirming that human life is sacred and that unborn children are persons. And we've been saying for almost 50 years, abortion ought to be illegal. Abortion ought to be illegal. Well, let's just do it. Let's just make it illegal. It's time. Yes, yeah, send, send it um, back so up to I'm the Supreme Court. To it passing. Yeah, send it back to the Supreme Court because, as you know, Jerry, as well as I know and a lot of people know, that uh, – 
there have been many constitutional scholars that said that that law was made out of pure cloth that they just came out and pulled it out of a hat so to speak they and did. It, and if yeah. it if it is re relooked at again they might reverse the decision and so if you poll the people of arkansas and you ask them do you believe abortion should be illegal most of them will tell you yes they believe it should be so this law is very much in keeping with what people in arkansas believe and um, so I think it's it's a it's one whose time has probably been overdue, but because we've said, oh well, the courts will strike it down and so forth and so on. Maybe not. Maybe not now. And maybe this thing can make it through. And so, hats off to Senator Rapert and Representative Mary Bentley for doing this really good law. We're going to get behind it. We're going to fight for it. And I think it'll pass. I think it's going to pass as well. Uh, and it'd be up to the Supreme Court then to uh, look at it and say, you know, you guys are right. And boy, that would be a that would be a great day here in uh, the United States. And for those people that says, well, nobody be able to get an abortion in the United States. That's wrong. That's just that's not right. Even when Roe v. Wade was passed and written, uh, there were states that allowed, you know, legalized abortions. Well, and let me, let me tell you what this does. This this would put the Arkansas law back the way it was for over 100 years um, prior to the Roe era and all that. And so it's not like we've never been there and done this before. And you know what? The lawmakers already voted for this law when it was in the, this language when it was in the trigger bill two years ago. Right. They said, we like this language. As soon as Roe is reversed, then we're good with this. And they voted for it. They put it in place two years ago. So they're going to have a hard time coming back and saying, well, I, I was okay when it was a trigger bill, but now that we're actually really going to do this, I don't know if I want to do it or not. Yeah, what, what's the difference? Get away with that. May I ask, what, what's the difference? There's no difference here. All we're doing yeah, is, it, is, is hoping to send it up to the Supreme Court. Exactly. We're, we're pulling the trigger on the trigger bill now instead of waiting for Roe to be reversed. That's that's really all that it is. It's the same law. So I think it's it's a brilliant strategy. Um, I think it's it's one that will work. And I think it's one the people of Arkansas are totally behind. And you're going to hear some naysayers in the media. Oh, and you're going to yeah. hear a few other people fuss about it. But if you go out here and just talk to people out here, real, real folks out here that living and working and doing their jobs – uh, they'll say, "Yeah, I'm for that. I'm, I'm for I'm for making abortion illegal, except to save the life of the mother." Period. End of the discussion. I'm with you. I'm with Jason Rapert on this too. I'll try to get the Senator on to talk about it. Be great to talk to him about that. And uh, absolutely, he's got a lot of other things going on as well that I can talk to him about. I can even talk to him. What's it like to have COVID nineteen? Because he's had that as well. <laughs> so we could we could do that. Well, that is true. But, but yeah, there are a lot of other pro-life bills that are going to be filed this session. And I think maybe by early next year, you may see Arkansas ranked as the most pro-life state in the nation. And oh, that, right great. now we're number two, right behind our friends down in Louisiana. And I've told the guys in Louisiana, hey, look in your rearview mirror. We're gaining on you. All right. Well, we'll get you on maybe in uh, December or very early January to go over those bills that are are going to be pending for the next general session. Jerry Cox, thanks so much. Hey, have a great Thanksgiving next week. We appreciate you giving us the time here on the Dave Ellswick Show so early in the morning.
Thank you so much. All right. Talk to you later now. All right. So that's uh, Jerry Cox from the Family Council. Always makes himself available to the show. Always is fun to have on the show. Uh, Jerry and I have very seldom got, as I like to say, loggerheads, but we have it a time or two. Uh, He and I uh, don't, for instance, agree on gambling. Gambling, I see, is a methodology. You can make up your own mind about whether you want to gamble or not. I don't think we need to make it illegal. But that, look, I'm like 98% in agreement with the guy, and so he passes the Reagan rule easily here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, Rush is coming up, and then we'll be back. Phil Kirpin coming up here on the Dave Ellswick Show. So stick around for that here at 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, back here on the Dave. I'm laughing at the guy's name that just did the traffic. Jackhammer. Got to like that. You know, in radio, it's like you always try to come up with a name. My name, I use my regular name. I don't, I didn't change my name. But uh, I had a buddy that went by the, he did sports and he went by the name, his first name was Jim. So he went with Jim Shorts. That's what he, <laughs> I'll never forget that at WJOB. That's the first station I ever worked with. Phil Kirpin is here. Phil, how you doing, brother? I'm good, Dave. How are you? I'm doing great. Jim Shorts. It's good. good. Yeah, I use my real name, too. I don't know. I'm not creative. I mean, I'm not creative enough. You know, I always thought people would have a hard time remembering Ellswick, but I found out that after you say it enough, people remember it. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, that's how right. I learned how to remember it as a little kid. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. Exactly. So it works out all right. Hey, by the way, I liked your uh, your little uh, tweet that uh, you sent out to the New York Times about uh, their concession that the president was right about keeping schools open. Isn't it amazing? They've had like six articles in the past week about how, oh, what a surprise, schools are safe. And it's like, they literally are the reason half the schools in this country are closed. Because all summer long, every two days, they would have another article. Oh, this study shows schools are huge spreaders. This study shows children are uh, the seed stealth super spreaders. And they they were all fake. They were all made up. And now they think, oh, wait, the election's over. Let's just like, hey, let's get on the right side with science and say schools should be open. they, They don't even like apologize for lying and distorting and hyping and scaring teachers and parents all summer long. Like, I, it, like they had nothing to do with it. Like they were bystanders. It's incredible. You know what the, you know what history is really going to remember? They're going to remember President Trump having his own Manhattan project and it worked getting a uh, a, a vaccine for COVID-19. That's going to be incredible. A, that's going to be a huge huge historical achievement, I do believe. Well, the average vaccine development timeline is like 20 or 30 years. And we did it in less than a year. I mean, think about that. And, you know, just the fact that you could even have the FDA process move on that timeline, like the slowest bureaucratic agency in the government until Trump. Um, and they basically cut all the red tape and they uh, they laid this out, this this timeline that, that remember when all the experts were saying, oh, he's crazy, he's lying. There's no way this could be that quick. Yeah. And then we find out the only reason we didn't get an announcement of these good vaccine results before the election was the FDA told these companies they had to wait two months, and and they lined it up for right after, which makes you wonder if there's some, uh, you know, some deep state operatives or whatever you want to call it over at FDA that uh, just didn't want the good news before the election. Now, Phil, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard that 
the people that work at the FDA, they all look like sloths. Um, and they all move about as fast. So I don't know if that's true or not. Well, yeah, I don't know what they look like, but they move, uh, you know, ridiculously <laughs> slowly prior to this year. I mean, they, they, they you know, got prompted to, to move a little bit quicker than usual. But, you know, they have this attitude at the FDA, which always drives me crazy. They have this attitude at the FDA that, oh, no, we can't approve this drug until we're totally, totally, totally sure that it's been through billions of dollars of tests and years and years of study because it might hurt someone if it gets on the market too early. And they ignore the fact that, like, you know, a drug that can cure a disease taking years of delay means you kill the people who can't get it. That's and right. They, they don't look at the other side of the coin. They, they've always been out of balance in terms of their, their risk aversion because from the bureaucrat perspective, if you approve something and something bad happens, well, that's your fault. If you don't approve it and it takes you, no one blames you for that. And so they just, they, they just they slow everything down and it takes forever. And it's one of the reasons uh, that drugs are so much more expensive than they should be because it takes years of uh, you know, dealing with the bureaucrats, which means you lose you know half your patent time um, because you can't even get to market, and you know doing all of jumping through all the hoops they want costs a ton of money also, and then you got to figure out a way to make it back. So that's uh, you know one of the reasons that the prices are so high, especially because. The rest of the world has government set prices, and so they basically get a free ride. We pay the costs of all the R and D, uh, and you know so forth, and then they just they they get it for a much lower price. This is one of the big things that Trump was talking about uh, changing was he wanted the you know the other rich countries to pay the same as we do for drugs. Well, you did a good job. A free ride. You have just done one of those great, admirable jobs I've saw you do many times, and that is bridge what you want to talk to talk to us about today and. You want to talk about drug prices, is that right? Yeah, well, I think this is going to be um, it's going to be a pretty dangerous area because um, you know Trump had some very good ideas on reducing drug prices, but he also had some sort of more liberal ideas that I didn't like. And you know, in his whole approach, which kind of made sense, uh, is he said, "Look, you know, we're developing the drugs; we shouldn't pay more than other rich countries. It should be the same price for Europe and Canada and for the right. United States, and we should stop letting them get at a cheap price." And you know, that makes you know that makes a lot of sense. I think most people say the current system where we pay a lot more is ridiculous, uh, but. There's, uh, it, it's easier said than done for the following reason, Dave. If we just say, hey, we're just going to adopt their price, when their price is a government-set price that doesn't cover the R&D costs, uh, if we do that, we're not going to get any new drugs anymore because there's no return on capital. You know, if it costs a billion dollars to develop a drug, but you can't ever earn that money back because everybody's got a low government-set price, uh, yeah, you're going to lose a lot of innovation. We're not going to get the cures we need and so forth. What you need to do is you need to get these countries to raise their prices so we can lower ours and meet in the middle, and you've still got enough of a return on investment to, to justify uh, you know, innovation and research and so forth. And so uh, that was actually one of the things Trump was trying to do through his trade negotiations. And a lot of people say, oh, yeah, yeah, right, you're never going to convince another country to pay more for drugs. And the amazing thing is uh, – in the USMCA, Trump actually convinced Canada and Mexico to raise their drug prices for biotech drugs. And that was in the draft agreement, and Nancy Pelosi made him take it out. And so they ended up removing it. And why, did she she, why do you think she did that? Because she said, how dare you 
do something that'll let the drug companies make more money. And then and the Trump team was like, well, but it's more money from other countries, so we can get lower prices for us. And she's like, I don't care. The drug company should never get more money from anyone. You take it out. And that was one of the things that they took it out. So, you know, here, here's the danger. Here's what I worry about is, uh, you know, in, assuming Trump doesn't have some great uh, proof that's going to reverse the election, and I know we all want to believe he does, but I'm starting to lose patience because we still haven't seen it. That's right. So assuming we're going to have a President Biden here, which looks likely. I know we don't like to talk about it. I don't know. You know, people get upset. But it is the truth, unfortunately, barring some big change. Um, you know, they could come in and they could say, hey, we're going to just adopt foreign prices for U.S. prices. That was one of the things Trump wanted to do. It's bipartisan. And, you know, just do the easy part without doing the hard part, which is getting other countries to, to raise their prices. And if you just do the easy part and you say, hey, we're going to link our prices to government set prices in other countries, um, you know, it feels good in the near term. It might be good politically because you could lower prices at the register and people would like that. But it'll be devastating in the medium to long term because, you know, what company's ever going to invest in developing a new drug if they're not going to be able to make their money back because you've got low government set prices everywhere. And so that's the danger I really worry about is that by, by saying, oh, this is bipartisan, we're picking up a Trump administration thing, we might get the, uh, you know, the easy part without the hard part. And uh, that would have really bad negative long term consequences, unfortunately. Okay, so Phil, talk to us a little bit about many of the uh, countries over in Europe, uh, one of the things that they can do is very quickly start making drugs that are made here in America, making them into generic drugs over in Europe, which undercuts the ability of uh, you know the pharmaceutical companies here in the United States and in England and whatever uh, to make money. I mean, literally, they can turn a, a drug into a generic in, in, a, in a very quick period of time. Well, they can't do it if it's under patent protection. And all of these countries um, have pretty strong intellectual property uh, protections, uh, you know, the other rich countries. And so uh, that's not normally uh, an, an issue, although you could see a scenario where it becomes an issue if, let's say, you know, we said we're going to try to, we're going to get really serious. You know, what, let me walk you through a couple steps how that might happen. And okay. Why concerned about it. So let's say we adopted foreign prices as U.S. prices. We said, you know, we're going to, we're going to take an average of foreign prices or we're going to take the lowest foreign price. That's going to be the U.S. price now. Well, the drug companies are not stupid. You know, if they make all their money or most of their money in the U.S. market and you tell them now we're going to charge what you're charging in other countries, you know, most of them are going to tell these foreign countries, uh, sorry, we can't sell to you anymore, or we can only sell to you at a much higher price. And then you're going to have uh, potentially precisely what you're talking about. You could have these countries say, well, you know what, if you don't sell to us at the price we want, we're going to issue a compulsory license, and we're going to have a domestic manufacturer basically steal your property, and, you know, we're just going to produce it here. And then you have maybe complaints filed at the WTO, or you have a diplomatic, uh, you know, um, Whatever you want to call it, the State Department gets involved in the U.S. trade rep, and they go over and they try to stop it. Uh, but the bottom line is, you know, if the U.S. price is not a market price anymore, if we made it a political price set by politicians and we linked it to what's being charged in other countries, um, the drug companies are not going to just say, okay, great, now we're going to take this low price that we can't make any money at, and uh, that's fine. They're going to change their behavior to try to get around it, and then you have a whole sort of cascade of different consequences that could happen. 
All right. So is there any kind of bills in the works that we need to be paying attention to at this time? Well, I think the worst bill that's ever been introduced on drug pricing was the one that the House passed in this current Congress, Nancy Pelosi's H.R. 3, which uh, has government essentially sit down. She calls this a negotiation. This is what Democrats think negotiation is. She has the uh, government sit down with drug companies and say, this is what we think your price should be. And, you know, you can take it or leave it. It's a negotiation. But if you don't take the government price, you get taxed 95 percent of your total sales of that product, uh, which is... Uh, yeah, that's not much of a negotiation. Yeah, and not much of a negotiation, exactly. So, you know, that's the worst bill that's ever been introduced, in my judgment, because if something like that passed, um, it would be completely devastating for, in, you know, new drug R&D. You, you would basically go to zero. It just You would never be able to justify putting the capital into it. And uh, yeah, that's really... What I worry about, especially if, uh, you know, God forbid the Democrats win the Senate in these special elections in Georgia, we're going to see them basically just say we're going to have a total government. Government's going to set the prices. Government's going to take over because, you know, it's a simple sort of political slogan. We're just going to lower prices just by lowering them directly, having government do it. Um, But that will have devastating consequences. So that's what I worry about the most. The second thing I worry about is what we just talked about, which is you could have a Biden administration come in and take sort of half of the Trump ideas, the easy ones, and, and, not, and ignore the uh, hard ones. I'm on the phone, sweetie. And ignore the, uh, and ignore the, uh, you know, the hard part, and that would have bad consequences, too. So I do worry about the, uh, the, ability, the ability of a potential Biden administration to reference, hey, this is bipartisan because it was a Trump idea, and then just take kind of half of the Trump idea. It's something I really worry about. All right, Phil, I'll let you get to your kids. I'm sorry to hold you away from them. Yeah, Have my it. wife is at the office. My kids only are allowed to go to school two days a week now, so the other three, it's uh, wonderful. All right, well, we, we appreciate you and uh, do have a great Thanksgiving. And uh, where can people get more information on these ideas that you have? American, AmericanCommitment.org. All right. We appreciate you, brother. Have a good one, Phil. Have a good one. All right. Phil Kirpin here on the uh, Dave Ellswick Show. I got to know Phil at CPAC and uh, have him on from time to time. And, you know, he's dealing with a lot of things that everybody's dealing with. Kids are at home. That's just the way it goes. All right. Don't forget about Hillcrest Designer Jewelry. They'll take good care of you getting that piece of jewelry ready for a Christmas time. It's not Christmas, not that far away. I mean, Thanksgiving's next week. Then we make the the big four-week, you know, we get out there and sprint to Christmas time. It'll be a little different sprint this year. Your, your fingers will probably get tired out buying online. Uh, not so much having to be walking around the stores all the time, but it, it's coming. So call or go by. I always suggest you go by and uh, sit down with Eric Coleman. Talk to him a little bit. Tell him what you're looking for. Tell him about the person that you want to you know, have the, the jewelry uh, designed for. And he'll take some things out of that person's personality and put it in the ring or the necklace or the brooch or the bracelet that you're trying to get for the people. And and you're going to save money on diamonds. You'll save money on colored gemstones. Uh, Eric is a great gemologist. Uh, he's a great artisan. He can give you exactly what you're wanting at a price point that I think you'll be very, very happy with. 3000 Cavanaugh, that's Hillcrest Designer Jewelry. On this day in 1863, President 
Abraham Lincoln made his way to Gettysburg and delivered the Gettysburg Address. It was about three minutes long. That's all it was. It was a very, very short speech. But uh, historically, it's looked at one of the greatest speeches ever given by any president of uh, how he was able to encapsulate uh, our view of what democracy, federal democracy, was supposed to be about. You know, the, the, the Battle of Gettysburg was a huge, huge battle. It, it was the turning point, literally, of the Civil War. After the Battle at Gettysburg, uh, Robert E. Lee never made another foray into the North. Before that, he had been in it many, many times. The, uh, the battle lasted three days. More than 45,000 men were killed, injured, captured, or went missing. The battle also proved, again, as I said, to be the turning point of the, of the, of the war. Charged by Pennsylvania's governor, Andrew Curtin, to care for the Gettysburg dead, an attorney named David Wills bought 17 acres of pasture to turn into a cemetery for the more than 7,500 who fell in battle. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Gettysburg or not, but it should, it should be on your bucket list. It is really, it's a solemn place to go to and to drive through. So you can get a little, a little, uh, uh, you know, tape player, whatever, and play it as you drive through and learn a whole lot of things uh, than just about Pickett's Charge, which most people know about. Wills invited Edward Everett, one of the most famous orators of the day, to uh, deliver a speech at the uh, cemetery's dedication. Now, as an afterthought, Wills sent a letter to Lincoln just two weeks before the ceremony requesting a few appropriate remarks to consecrate uh, the grounds. At the dedication, the crowd listened, are you ready for this, for two hours to Everett before Lincoln stood to speak. Lincoln's address lasted just two or three minutes. The speech reflected his redefined belief that the Civil War was not just a fight to save the Union, but a struggle for freedom and equality for all, an idea Lincoln had not championed in the years leading up to the war. And uh, I don't have time. I wish I had time to read uh, the Gettysburg Address to you. But you probably read it at least once during the time that you were in school, maybe a couple of times. But if, if you forgot what it said, may I suggest to you that you go back and uh, just Google it and read it. And read the last couple of paragraphs, because that is really what America is all about. <clears throat> That's going to wrap it up for the live edition of the Dave Ellswick Show today. Don't forget, I'll be back with you at 6 o'clock. And Lance Hines is going to be with me from 5th District here in uh, Little Rock. We're going to talk about uh, what's going on with the Little Rock Police Chief. We're going to talk about that. Uh, at 6.05 right here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Until then, you have a great day. I'll see you again tomorrow live at 6.05.
Let's get to it at 6 o'clock here on the Dave Ellswick Show. And Lance Hines joins us. <clears throat> Excuse me. He is with the 5th uh, District of uh, Little Rock City Council. And uh, Lance, good to have you with us today. Before I get into the, the subject that I want to talk with you about. Good to be with you, Dave. Yeah, l- l- let's talk about the uh, the election in Pulaski County. There, there are some real problems that occurred with that. And... Uh, it seems like it, it was on just one side of this whole issue, and it dealt with Democrats. Would you agree with that? I, I would definitely agree with it. You know, I've been watching that closely. I'm very good friends with Jim Cervillo and then, of course, Keith Brooks, who won the district that represents me. Uh, worked with him on his campaign and been keeping in touch with Jim through the process and, of course, getting tidbits through the through the paper seems to me, you know, and I did not realize that the uh, county judge, Barry Hyde, had taken over uh, the hiring and firing of those election, uh, of the folks within the county who actually run the election. That would be Brian Poe and his crew. Uh, and it was done uh, with uh, within a budget amendment evidently last year. Uh, you know, I, I was in a way worried about what was going on at the clerk's office, but it looks like it's more embedded with the election officials. And I don't understand how you can misplay, how you can run 327 ballots that were declared ineligible and mix them in with other ballots. So you can't, uh, 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 separate them. And I think they determined that of those, those ballots, that there were enough, more than enough ballots to offset the 25 votes in the Cervillo race. Yeah, that, that, there's a big question here. And I, and I, I heard that, uh, Sorvillo is Jim is going to bring a lawsuit on this, and I think he's got some real serious grounds to win it. Right. Yeah, and I think I think the win would be a, uh, as my understanding, they would set aside the election results and have another election. Oh, geez. Election is my understanding. Now, that'd be crazy. So, that'd really be crazy. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. That I mean, uh, Star and 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 Evelyn Gomez. You know, both of them are, I think, beside themselves. Uh, they really saw the the ugly underbelly of election politics uh, during this this last election, and it started you know, months and, ago. And Pulaski County's always had a bad reputation uh, for being the last to turn in their votes. Uh, you know, even though they've got the most modern equipment, I, I think the judge bought new election equipment this past year, so. Um, you know, the fact that, uh, and it was my understanding, they had counted most of the early, almost all the early votes on election night. Uh, so it, it's kind of interesting. I know there was some, some, uh, rancor that some votes were found or brought in after the state statute allowed. And there was, there was uh, discord over that as well. Well, uh, no. I, I wasn't, I wasn't as, as tuned into that as I have been the, 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 uh, the, disallowed or uh the ballots that were thrown out for not meeting the legal standard of a legal right. vote and, and then somebody picks that box up and runs them through the machine 
Uh, and, you know, and, and the only thing Brian Poe could come up with is an apology. That's, I mean, that's something you need to be terminated for, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I thought it looks like that's what they tried to do, but uh, the politicians that be got involved in it, and they just slapped him on the wrist. It was yep. the way it looked like it, it, it worked out. And, I mean, finding a box of ballots and then going back to get them, and now it's been taped up to protect them and all it. I'm going to tell you what, uh, Lance, this, I grew up outside of Chicago, and this smacks of what they used to do in Chicago all the time. You know, you'd find out you needed X amount of votes to, to win a race, and suddenly uh, a box of ballots would appear from nowhere uh, and end and up I on... Think, yeah. yeah, I mean, and it's happened all, it looks like it's happening all over the country. You know, ballots of ballots showing up here and there, uh, when counties stop counting in the middle of the night, <laughs> yep. all yep. suspect. Uh, you know, I, I know that I know that the uh, that the Arkansas GOP, Dole Webb, and those guys were really keeping an eye on Pulaski County because that's where they felt the most uh, the most possibility for shenanigans is. And we got to we got to continue to watch this because you know if if you're not having a clean election and it's because of just a few people. Those people need to go. I, I think I know that you agree with that, and I agree with that, and a lot of people agree. Even a lot of Democrats agree with that, to be honest with you. All right, so let's get back now what I asked you to come on uh, about, uh, and that is uh, you brought up uh, some issue with the chief of police uh, here in Little Rock. Why don't you bring us up to date on, on what happened and why it happened? So really, it's been continuing issues ever since uh, the chief did the Mayor Scott's bidding and fired Chief Starks uh, over a year ago after the Bradley Berkshire uh, justified uh, shooting. Uh, you know, it's been a continuation of him not listening to his command staff, uh, using retaliatory behavior for his command staff officers that went against him in the Civil Service Commission testimony uh, as to why uh officer starks was fired but really what happened is you know i've been pretty public and and even made statements to the mayor and, and public but i just felt after this last go round with our violent crime upticking in little rock up 24 percent year over year the mayor tries to say well overall crime's down yeah but the crime that matters the violent crime the murders rapes assaults um armed robberies those are up 24 percent and those are the ones that make the headlines and give Little Rock a bad name. Right. And this chief, this chief, and, and I wasn't aware of it till recently, disbanded our, our VCAT team, which is a violent crime apprehension team. Uh, and in correlation with that, that's why we've had a rise in violent crime. Now he's disbanded the CO, the community-oriented policing program, our COPS program, uh, to try to put a Band-Aid on a gaping chest wound. And uh, he thinks in two months he's going to be able to get a handle on a violent crime. And really what it is is the past six or nine months since he's disbanded our VCAT team. And I guess he didn't like it because that's what Chief Buckner put in place while he was here. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's just a general discord, uh, lack of public safety. Uh, I, I really, honest to, to goodness, think that the chief is just in over his head. And he won't listen to his command staff. And any leader knows you don't do it alone. You have to rely on you have to you have to have good, competent people that work for you, which I think we have some of the best in the state at LRPD. 
and they know how they know where the criminals are and they know where the crime happened. And he has not allowed them to do their job. And so I, I'm just putting it out there. A majority of the board members, we have all gone to the mayor over the last year telling him that he needs to get rid of this chief. And the mayor, for some reason, I don't know if he's scared of getting sued or what, uh, has, or maybe he's just, his ego is just too big and he can't, he can't deal with the fact that he made a bad decision on this hire. Uh, you know, and, 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 I, I, and if he's worried about getting sued, what he doesn't realize is we're going to get sued either way. If he doesn't get rid of the chief, I think we're going to have more lawsuits. I hear, there's, I hear there's a sexual harassment complaint that was investigated by HR uh, and that was found to be credible. Uh, I haven't seen the memo. Uh, and our city manager and the mayor have failed to take action. If that's the case, then, then now we, the city is culpable uh, in sexual harassment, and we'll get sued. If we don't get rid of the chief and take disciplinary action against him, then those employees are going to sue us. Right. So that adds to the other lawsuits that have already been filed for, for harassment and, and retaliation by the chief. So, you know, I, I would rather take my – I'm looking at this as uh, we're going to get sued either way, and I'd rather get sued by someone we can beat in court based on their bad behavior uh, than uh, victims of that person's bad behavior. Yeah, and there's been a lot of bad behavior out there, but I think you're right. I th- I think that Mayor, I think Frank Scott just doesn't want to, to admit that he put the right, wrong guy in that position, and it would seem like to me the easiest way to know that you made a bad decision is all the command staff that's, you know, departing from the from the little rock police department well and i'll tell you another thing i read today's article about the the union impasse and and mayor scott trying to say well we we need bpoa representation right now on the fops negotiated they have five members two of those members so two out of five uh 40 percent or so uh are uh are bpoa dual members but that's not good enough. The chief wanted to add, I mean, the, the mayor wanted to add four BPOA members and expand that, that committee to nine, which is just, in the FOP's opinion, too big a committee to do negotiations with. Um, you know, and, and the firefighters have had it turned on them. Uh, flame is not at the seat of the table. Uh, the Flame president joined the IFF, and they put him on their negotiating committee. So, you know, and, and then, of course, the mayor runs with a statement that, this is, you know, historic. Well, I mean, what I view is we've got four four groups there. We've got two, the IAFF and the FOP, that are open to any firefighter or sworn police officer in Little Rock. That it doesn't matter if you're African American, Latino, Asian, Indian, uh, gay, straight, lesbian. Uh, it doesn't matter. They're open to everyone. And then we've got two organizations in Flame and the BPOA that the only thing they're concerned with is the color of your skin. And so to me, that's not diversity. That's that's trying to be separate but equal. And that went out with Brown versus Board of Education. Right. So, you know, and, and that's what the mayor's trying to turn this into a racial issue. And the BPOA, many of their members are dual members in the FOP. And to, to say that 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 they're not represented is just is just disingenuous. 
Well, I don't disagree with you, and it seems to me that city council is pretty, pretty uh, all together on seeing this police chief uh, leaving. Is is there something that needs to be done in the future about how the police chief is is hired? That it may not be just a mayoral decision, but perhaps uh, you know the city council should have to weigh in on the the person that he wants to hire. Well. Well, uh, I guess we can if the mayor decides to go back to letting the city manager do in the hiring firing of the police chief and the deal. Under our current ordinance, our current form of government, the mayor is within his rights to do what he's doing right now. Uh, so in order to change that, we would have to go back out to the voters and change our, change our ordinance. So from that standpoint, um, you know, I, th- I think it's it's created a very interesting uh, deal. When the city manager did the hiring and firing, if there was a majority of the board that had been telling the city manager what we've been telling the mayor, uh, Chief Humphrey would not be in command of the police department right now. Uh-huh. And, and that's because the city the city board of directors, the mayor is included in the city board of directors, only has two employees, the city attorney and the city manager. And the city manager is really good at being able to count. And if there's six of us that uh, that uh, wanted something done, it's going to get done. But unfortunately, the mayor um, is not bound by the majority of us. So the only lever we have left is to go public and to do a resolution and hopefully put, you know, use the bully pulpit of the board of directors to put some pressure on the mayor to act. I, I doubt it's going to do any good, but it's going to send a clear signal to the citizens of Little Rock and to our police officers, our rank and file police officers, where the mayor stands on this. So, uh, you know, he, 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 I think he has the ability to veto it. I don't know that I've got enough votes to withstand a veto, but I do have a majority of the city board uh, that's going to that's gonna vote with me based on the conversation I've had over the last six, six to nine months. The other thing that's killing us right now is our recruiting. We've got what I'm hearing – more than 20 officers have applied to Troop A with the state police and other outside agencies. Uh, also, our recruiting is dipped. We haven't been able to fill the recruiting class with over 20 uh, recruits in it for over a year and a half now. And we have to have at least 20 in every recruit class just to keep up with our natural attrition rate. If you throw in 20 officers leaving because of all the rancor and discord, and, and I'll tell you how bad it is. We are the highest-paying agency with the best benefits in the state, right. better than the state police, better than all those. So those officers are leaving not because the pay is bad or the work's too hard. It's because of the work environment this police chief's created. All right, La- all La- Lance, their job. Lance, let me jump in. We need to take a break. Let's take a break. We'll come back and finish up our conversation when we get back. Lance Hines is my Thank guest. You. He's uh, with the city council. He represents District 5. We'll talk to him more when we return. All right, let's finish it up uh, with uh, Lance Hines here on the Dave Ellswick Show. We've been talking about problems in the Little Rock Police Department, especially uh, in the office of the chief of police uh, that Mayor Frank Scott uh, seems to stand firmly still behind the chief, although there's all kinds of problems within the department. Crime is up. Violent crime is up. Uh, in the, in the city of Little Rock, and recruitment is down. And and uh, Lance, go back if you would for the people who may have just joined us, and uh, and uh, 
Tell us again about, us again uh, about the, the recruitment. The, the recruitment. I'm hearing him, but I'm, I'm he- it's way back in the back. Dave, can you hear me now? Now I got you. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, sorry about that. My I guess my, my earpiece wasn't picking up right. Uh, so basically when Chief Buckner was here, our recruit, when he came in, one of the big things he had to fix was our recruiting. It, it, it had kind of fallen to the level it's at right now. We were really struggling. And if you recall, that was during the Obama administration. Uh, became very anti-police. Uh, you know, it, it's already a tough job to recruit things, too, because uh, generally police are running towards gunfire, not away from it. Um, so it takes a special kind of person to want to do that job. Uh, so it's already a tough environment to recruit in. Chief Buckner revamped our recruiting process to get more folks into the top of the funnel, have a more objective interview process rather than subjective so we could get more candidates into into the school and more recruits in. And we succeeded. And for a period of almost two years, we were having recruit classes with, you know, 25 to about, I think they can handle about 32 recruits a class. Uh-huh. But we were, we were, you know, we were having classes that were anywhere from 25 to 30 recruits. Um, and we and we got fully staffed at the end, right before Chief Buckner left. We got fully staffed. We haven't been fully staffed in a year and a half because our recruiting has fallen. You know, part of the thing on the recruiting is um, we've gone through another another round of, with the George Floyd stuff, another round of folks maybe not thinking they want to be police officers. So you've got that, and then when you add the rancor and discord that this chief's caused in the department – and your best recruiters are your rank-and-file officers. They talk to the people in the community. They have friends, and, and they're your best recruiters. Well, right now, we're struggling because there's not many of them are saying this is a good place to work anymore because of the work environment that, that this chief's created. All right. Lance, i got about three minutes left. What are you hearing from the people? And I, I'm sure you're getting an earful, so share that with us. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I constantly am hearing, and the biggest complaints I'm hearing are about violent crime. And the other big issue for a lot of Little Rock is this caravanning issue. And the chiefs refuse to get his arms around it. The state police has offered their help. They can have 100 troopers down here within an, a three-hour call-up, I think. The state police has offered that to us, and the chief refuses to ask them for help, mainly because of his conflict he had with them over the riots down at the state capitol during the George Floyd protests. And so he, he is unwilling to reach out for help, uh, and that just to me is ego or just stupidity, I guess. Um, but the caravanning issue has been huge, uh, you know, and, and people are tired of it. They, they see what's going on. They have friends in the police department. They hear from them about how bad the work environment is, and they understand that ineffective leadership at the top leads to, leads to weak policing on the front lines. And and they can see it in the rise in violent crime, and 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 that's they're they're fed up with it. They want to see the chief gone as well. All right. The chief shouldn't be the leading story. Uh, anytime you have a department head that's that's bigger than the department, it's time for him to go. Well, and it's time for Frank Scott to explain why he so firmly stands behind this man uh, consistently. Because it seems to me, as I talk to people. They'd like to see this chief gone as well. So uh, I'll talk to you in the future. 
You have a great Thanksgiving next weekend or next week, and then uh, we'll get back together after Thanksgiving, and we'll talk sometime between then and uh, and Christmas. How's that? Sounds like a plan, Dave. Thanks for having me on. All right. Appreciate to have you. Lance Hines here on the Dave Ellswick Show. And, you know, this kind of rancor and this kind of uh, problem uh, that's going on in uh, our our, uh, police department in Little Rock uh, is not good. And it's not good for the safety of the people of this city. And what it's really not good for, and you heard it kind of referenced, is that when you have a 24% uptick in violent crime, people who are looking to move their businesses perhaps around this area are looking at and go, "Mm, don't think so. Don't think I want to bring my business there. So keep that in mind. We'll keep our eye on the story. We'll get back and give you the latest a little later on next month. All right, let's continue on the Dave Ellswick show. And uh, GOP lawmakers are demanding immediate hearings to examine the integrity of the 2020 election. Uh, Two Republicans in Congress calling for hearings to be convened so that lawmakers can examine the integrity of the election. Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio, James Comer of Kentucky, sent a letter to the Judiciary Committee Chair Jerry Nadler and Oversight Panel Chair Carolyn Maloney late on Wednesday evening demanding an immediately, an immediate, pardon me, uh, congressional investigation. So what's this letter say? The letter comes after the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency released a statement last week indicating that the recent elections were, quote, the most secure in American history. The letter stated, we urge you to immediately convene hearings to examine the integrity of the 2020 election amid troubling reports of irregularities and improprieties. Uh, Given your role as leaders of a political party that spent four years baselessly calling into question the legitimacy of the 2016 election with debunked allegations of Russian collusion. Uh, You owe it to all Americans to fully examine allegations of actual election errors and misconduct. On September 23rd, 2020, we released a report detailing how Democrats across the country were pushing last minute changes to state election laws and procedures. We warned that these dangerous initiatives would increase the risk of election-related crimes and errors, undermine the integrity of the electoral process, and cause lingering uncertainty about the results of the election for several days or weeks after Election Day. Democrats ignored this report, but many of our predictions have unfortunately come true. In September, the Democrat majority on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court unilaterally extended the deadline to receive mail-in and absentee ballots by three days after Election Day and directed that ballots received without a postmark would be presumed to have been received timely. We warned in our report that this change would create, quote, considerable risk for uncertainty and litigation as it did. 
litigation about this last-minute change is currently pending before the U.S. Supreme Court, and Pennsylvania is still counting mail-in and absentee ballots. In addition, allegations have been made that local officials in some Pennsylvania counties are restricting the ability of campaign watchers to properly observe officials processing absentee and mail-in ballots as they are reviewed, opened, counted, and recorded, and by law. We also warned in our report that because Democrats refused to clean up up outdated and inaccurate voter registration rolls, a last-minute move to widespread mail-in voting in some states would have unintended consequences. In California, for example, Democrat Governor Galvin Newsom signed legislation in June that required election officials to hold an all-mail election. After the state began mailing ballots, reports surfaced of voters receiving duplicate ballots, voters receiving multiple ballots containing different versions of their name, and receiving ballots that belong to someone else. Following these reports, California County election officials assured local news outlets that there were systems in place to only count the first ballot to arrive from a voter. But one official estimated that in his county alone, 1,200 voters will get double or even triple ballots. And another official stated that, quote, it's common to receive more than one ballot, unquote. In Los Angeles County, the Registrar Recorder County Clerk's Office mailed approximately 2,100 faulty ballots to residents in Woodland Hills that repeated a list of state propositions twice and did not include a means for voting for the office of the President of the United States. Recent events in Georgia also raised concerns over election irregularities. During a state audit, county officials unearthed over 5,000 previously uncounted ballots. On November 16, 2020, Floyd County found 26 uncounted ballots that were scanned onto a memory card but never uploaded into the initial ballot count. Similarly, on November 17, 2020, Fayette County discovered 2,755 uncounted ballots, and most recently, Walton County found another 284 uncounted votes. These serious concerns give rise to the urgent need for congressional oversight of the integrity of the 2020 election. Our committees must conduct uh, uh, conduct oversight hearings to ensure that Americans have faith uh, in the integrity of our elections. We ask that you work with us to schedule and plan these hearings as soon as possible. Thank you for your prompt attention to this uh, request. So uh, that uh, is going on uh, as we speak, uh, as it's, you know, being taken care of. A a Twitter CEO is admitting his company was wrong to censor the Hunter Biden story. What a big surprise. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey said on uh, Tuesday now of this week that Twitter was wrong to censor the New York Post and its news stories on Hunter Biden, the son of former Vice President Joe Biden. Let me put this in in perspective for you. This is like the newspaper running running a story that has a banner headline on the front page above the fold, which is 
the part of the paper a lot of people only read uh, they walk past the paper they see that and that's the gospel and then they find out what that story said was not right was not true and so they publish a retraction which is in a little box on the third or fourth page maybe the second page inside the front page of the retraction but the part that everybody remembers is the banner headline that was on uh, the paper dorsey appeared virtually on capitol hill to testify again over his company's enforcement actions against the news outlet as well as other issues related to social media censorship Dorsey was called to testify in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee over why a social media company chose to censor news stories on the son of the Democratic nominee for president weeks away from the election. Now they're willing to say, well, we need to get that story out there. But before the election, absolutely not. They did everything they could to wipe it clean from their sites. Well, we were called here today because of an enforcement decision we made against the New York Post based on a policy we created in 2018 to prevent Twitter from being used to spread hacked materials. Uh, Twitter, uh, uh, to keep us from spreading that. This resulted in us blocking people from sharing a New York Post article publicly or privately. We made a quick interpretation using no other evidence that the materials in the article were obtained through hacking, and according to our policy, we blocked them from being spread. Upon further consideration, though, okay, see, now it's changed. We admitted this action was wrong and corrected it. Uh, Twitter locked the post's Twitter account on October 14th for posting a story on Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings based off communications pulled from Biden's alleged laptop that had been dropped off for repairs and never recovered from a Delaware computer repair shop. Twitter flagged the story under its policy against hacked materials, despite lacking any evidence that the emails contained in the story were obtained through hacking. Go on in the story says the social media company censored the story, preventing anyone from tweeting or direct messaging the article's URL. The platform also locked accounts that shared the article. Dorsey later admitted that his company's actions, first taken without giving any explanation, were not great, but refused to unlock the Post's Twitter account for weeks afterward, even after reversing course on their hacked materials, a justification for censoring history. Quote, We informed the New York Post of our error and policy update and how to unlock their account by deleting the original violating tweet, which freed them to tweet the exact same content and news article again. They chose not to, instead insisting we reverse our enforcement action. We did not have a practice around retroactively overturning prior enforcements. This incident demonstrated that we needed one, and so we created one we believe is now fair and appropriate. While censorship of the Post article nearly doubled its visibility, major network media and news outlets refused to cover the story. The media blackout may have given a major boost to Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign. Just things to be thinking about. Now now they've changed a lot of stuff. 
about all this. The Daily Wire, by the way, let me get one last thing in here before we go to our break. The Daily Wire, and that's Ben Shapiro's uh, website, uh, had this to say. Internal data from the Biden campaign shows that bombshell stories relating to a laptop apparently owned by Hunter Biden made more noise online than the massive Hillary Clinton email scandal of 2016. However, Team Biden was spared scrutiny from the mainstream media, seemingly boosting him in the 2020 presidential election. According to Biden campaign metrics, online chatter about the Hunter Biden story during the election's last few weeks was greater than it was around Hillary's emails during last month of 16. And according to Daily Beast, Sam Stein reporting on that Monday, the difference, it never spilled over into mainstream outlets. So there you go. All right. Something to think about. All right. With that uh, said, let's go ahead and get our break in. Then we'll do our final segment uh, for this Thursday. Tomorrow, let me just tell you real quickly, we've got a full, full show tomorrow. We'll start off with Kat Robinson. Kat hasn't been on in a while. COVID-19 kept that from happening. Uh, she's going to join me by phone tomorrow. She's got a new book out called, called A Bite of Arkansas. We always talk about great restaurants with her. We'll do that uh, tomorrow uh, in the first hour of the Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, at 7 o'clock, we're going to be joined by the Salvation Army. The Angel Trees are going. Uh, we'll have them on. We'll talk about that. 7.35, Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett will join me until 8.30, 8.30, Matt Smith We'll talk with me about what's coming out, movies uh, this weekend. There's three, biggest one, Vanguard, new Jackie Chan movie, and uh, I'm going to go see that tonight, so I'll have my thoughts about it for you on the show. We'll be back in a moment. Let's get our final break in right now at 101.1 FM, The Answer. Final segment of the Dave Ellswick Show for a Thursday edition, and I can't think of a better way to end it than have somebody from a big tech company talking about Facebook and Twitter and Google because we've got a real problem with those businesses. Uh, He says that big tech companies like Facebook and Twitter crossed the line censoring working-class America. That from billionaire uh, tech firm CEO Peter Rex, the founder and CEO of Rex, a tech investment in real estate firm moved his company from Seattle to Texas earlier this year and says that tech companies need new leadership that will align their location and thinking with the rest of America. Rex said that he's proud to be an American. We've still got the greatest country out there. My family and my ancestors came from Ireland where as Catholics uh, they were held down, and, and I'm seeing this kind of censorship and holding people down, trying to hold the working class down, and I'm not going to allow that to happen. I'm not going to stand by. I'm going to fight for them, he said. The billionaire leader says tech leadership sucks. That's a pretty pretty straight uh, way of uh, explaining it, isn't it? And it needs to be replaced. Well, we need leadership that believes in people, he said, leadership that believes especially in the working class that wants to protect 
freedom of speech and trust people to be able to discern the truth when given the opportunity to see various points of view. He said two things need to be done to get new leadership in big tech. First, we have to invest in entrepreneurs who are grounded in Judeo-Christian thinking, who are committed to serving people, the types of people who love to take your make your money alongside of, he said. Secondly, we need to build an alternative power structure outside of Silicon Valley and Seattle in a place where freedom, faith, and family are flourishing are and are still held as sacred. His company moved to Texas after one employee couldn't buy a home in Seattle. But since the move, his employees, including that one, have loved it and their company morale has improved. It won't be easy to achieve this kind of tech transformation. It's going to take a lot of years and a lot of dollars. But the investment will be well worth it, he wrote in an op-ed for Fox Business. So something uh, to, to think about as far as that. Oxford AstraZeneca, since we've been talking about their testing going on here in, in Arkansas, and uh, we, of course, had the interview with Applied Research, who's uh, doing all the infrastructure to make that testing possible, uh, came out and uh, said that uh, the uh, coronavirus vaccine is safe. And it also induces an immune response in older adults. Oxford University and AstraZeneca's coronavirus vaccine uh, candidate was safe, uh, boosted an immune response, and was better tolerated among older adults. That's according to their phase two clinical trial data. Now, they're in phase three as we speak. Researchers uh, used 560 uh, participants. 240 of them were aged 70 years old or older. The results were published in the peer-reviewed journal, uh, The Lancet, uh, today. If the boosted immune response correlates to protection against the virus, researchers say the findings are very encouraging because older adults are, of course, at a higher risk of more serious outcomes after infection. The ongoing Phase 3 trial will assess the vaccine's effectiveness. The team found that younger participants experience uh, side effects like pain at the vaccine's injection site, a little bit of fever, some muscle ache, uh, more often than older adults. More specifically, after two doses, 88% of those aged 18 to 55 had so-called local reactions, redness and swelling at the injection site, whereas 61% of participants over 70 experienced those reactions. The team said the latest findings upheld research from an earlier phase. Also, by October 26, there were 13 serious adverse events, though researchers said none of which are considered related to either study vaccine as assessed by the investigators. Earlier reports arose of one volunteer's death in Brazil during the phase three trial, and researchers said serious adverse reactions would be described in a uh, future report. The phase three trial was briefly put on pause before it restarted late last month. 
top scientists at the WHO, Dr. Uh, Swaman Athan, had said the pause in the study was a good wake-up call given ups and downs in research. Independent in, uh, assessments have led to the recommendation that the trial is safe to continue. Finally, researchers said the vaccine invoked a so-called T-cell response uh, 14 days after vaccination with an antibody response 28 days later. Uh, the T-cells are lymphocytes, which are parts of white blood cells that help fight various infections. Uh, said Dr. Shaw, infectious disease expert at the Mayo Clinic, uninvolved with the AstraZeneca trial. Studies suggest T-cells play a large role in immune response to the coronavirus and what kind of role they play is being investigated. The Oxford AstraZeneca team said the Phase two trial had its limitations, including how participants aged over 70 had few underlying health conditions which might not be representative of the general older population, though ongoing late-stage trials are assessing the vaccine in older adults with more, uh, you know, comorbidities. So uh, we'll find that out as they go through the test that's going on right now. In fact, I want to have those folks back on again maybe next week to, to talk further about the testing of uh, that vaccine. I'm excited about what's going on on the vaccine side of science. Absolutely amazed. And because they're using DNA, totally different than the way vaccines were made in the past and much safer. I'm out of time. I got to get out of here. See you tomorrow, 6 a.m. with Cat Robinson. <laughs>